Fusion. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infect your brain. I'm Dr. Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature building body parts, mind-controlling parasites, and Tassie Devil immunity. First up, Professor Bruce Milthorpe is the Dean of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Ian Wolfe spoke to him about his research into tissue engineering spare body parts. Ian began by asking him about the connection between coral and rebuilding bones. So there are other creatures in the sea that have calcium carbonate-based skeletons, and these um, skeletons have nice cell-sized holes in them where the creatures live, but, but they're also very, very suitable sizes for bone itself uh, to grow and for bone marrow to, to grow in. Uh, and with a little bit of tweaking and some chemical modification, do make some really excellent, uh, basically, skeletons for inducing bone to grow in areas where, at the moment, you might have a, a, a defect. So maybe you've had a tumour or uh, you've had some trauma and you've lost some bone. These sorts of materials show a lot of promise for those sorts of areas. So they form like a scaffold for your own cells to grow into? Indeed, they do, yes. Uh, and it's an interesting thing about the way cells work and, and basically our, our knowledge now about the way that stem cells uh, work in the body is that if you provide them with the right sort of scaffold that gives the right sorts of cues, then you'll, you can regenerate the tissue that you're trying to. If you don't provide the right sort of cues, then you end up with scar tissue, basically, which is I mean, a good way of filling a hole uh, and that's why the body makes scar tissue, but it doesn't have the function that the original tissue had. And this coralline material, are you producing it in the lab or is that something you're harvesting? We're harvesting at the moment. It comes basically from uh, tropical beaches with coral sands. That's why it's called a coral material. It's a mixture of uh, corals and uh, other small creatures, foraminifera, uh, and other things which basically have this sort of structure. And then what we're trying to do is sort out the different types of material and now uh, we have a project that we're looking at how uh, the, the, the various whole sizes that come with these materials affect the uh, ingrowth of, uh, of stem cells and, and their generation of bone. And I've heard that these coralline materials can also be used for things like uh, prosthetic eyeballs that, the, the, you know, if you've had an eye removed and you need something that looks and moves like a normal eyeball? Yes. Uh, I mean, the standard eyeball at the moment is, or it used to be glass, of course, and uh, then moved on. There are also ones made from polymers, uh, acrylic polymers usually, perspex-type things. But coral also, or the coralline materials also have a potential to be used in this sort of way to make something that actually will allow your tissues to uh, grow into it a bit better than well, uh, than the uh, the standard glass or plastic eyes. And, and you were talking about stem cells. Are you working with the body's own stem cells? Uh, yes, we are. Uh, the idea is to, to try and use your own stem cells. Uh, and 
I know there's been a lot of uh, argument about whether one should use embryonic stem cells uh, and things called induced pluripotent stem cells. Uh, we would like to use adult stem cells wherever possible because they have the, the least number of potential problems along the way. And I've, I've heard that recently they've been able to extract stem cells not only from bone marrow but also from fat tissue. Is that right? That's right. They're called adipose stem cells simply because they're t taken from fatty tissue rather than bone marrow. They l behave rather similarly to, to bone marrow ones, not completely, uh, but they can still be used uh, for regenerating bone. The body, in fact, has large number. well, it has a number of stem cells <laughs> all the way through it, and a lot of those are able to be switched from one sort of tissue to another sort of tissue. So that stem cells that come from uh, fat tissue, adipose stem cells, tend, do, are able to reproduce the tissues and uh, from, from a lot of different areas of the body, because, even the, because they're somewhat like bone marrow stem cells and other stem cells around the body. Slightly different, but able, certainly to able to uh, reproduce bone. And in fact, we're fortunate because in a lot of the stem cells that you can find in various uh, parts of the body will be able to be directed to forming uh, new bone. And uh, that's, I think, uh, makes, it, makes it an easy area for research. Do you work with polymers as well as coralline materials? I do. Uh, some of my other areas of interest are basically with protein interactions with the materials generally that, that are used for all sorts of uh, spare parts. Uh, and then how the cells interact with those proteins. So I have a collaboration with a colleague at the University of New South Wales where we're looking at uh, a number of proteins that absorb to common materials, um, such as the, the acrylate polymers, which are used in a lot of uh, spare parts for people, and then uh, looking at how those, how the, how the, those proteins bind and, and then the, the cells bind on top of them. Uh, because different proteins binding to different materials actually end up giving a, a different effect on the cells. Basically, if you look at uh, what cells do, uh, they're quite smart in, in the body. They look at the material, they look at where they are, they have ways of examining their environment. Uh, and if they're in the wrong environment, they have a number of choices. One is to try and move and find the right environment. Uh, if they can't do that uh, and they are not able to change their type, so if they're differentiated cells, then if they're in the wrong place, they kill themselves. It's quite remarkable. But it's it's actually a requirement for multicelled organisms like ourselves that our cells behave this way. Because otherwise we'd end up with cells in the wrong place. Yes, and they're called tumours, and yes. you don't want them. <laughs> Another bit of news of, of this sort of material recently was a man with uh, artificial trachea. Right. Is that related to your work? It, it is. It's another uh, example of tissue engineering. Uh, in this case, uh, they're using a different sort of scaffold uh, to try and basically provide uh, an area on which you can then get what are called epithelial cells. So these are the lining cells for either your skin or, your, or the ducts of your, your body. Get them to grow on it uh, so that it then uh, basically provides a standard or reasonably standard looking um, organ for the, the trachea. 
This was for a poor patient, obviously, who had a tumour. So you're talking about how the body binds to the materials you're putting in, or are you talking about what basically the reactions that you want or reactions you don't want? We're after trying to get reactions that we do want rather than reactions that we don't. I think we're probably being a little bit above ourselves to some extent. We, we're trying to, uh, I suppose, full four billion years of evolution in a few short years of research. But we're, we're sort of getting to a stage where we can start to modify materials and actually get a response from cells that, that we do want, or more of the ones we do want, rather than the ones that we don't want, which are mainly the, uh, the rejection ones, the foreign body recognition responses. Uh, which basically end up with ending you know, with cells or with, with your body's immune cells coming and trying to destroy what it is you've you've put in there. Could you give me some examples of the sort of injuries that you're uh, working on repairing? Um, basically, uh, as I said earlier, we wanted to try and provide materials that will replace relatively large amounts of of bone, either taken for a tumour or or because you've had some sort of trauma, you come off the motorbike and mashed yourself up, you can end up losing a lot of uh, bits of bone. That's now largely replaced either by trying to harvest it from somewhere else in your body, which is painful and debilitating, um, or by using banked bone uh, from cadavers, which may or may not work particularly well. And if we can then provide this sort of material, uh, something that's that's available to the surgeon, they can just pull off the rack and stick it in and it, it will then get regrown. Uh, with bone in a shortish time, so again, with, you're talking, you want it to be done in less than a month to two mm. months, really, to get the patient then up and, and walking, uh, then that would actually be a very significant advantage for these, this group of people. Well, that also means it can go to more people, I would think, as well, because otherwise you're waiting for donors. Yes. That match. Um, yes, although banked bone uh, is basically not, uh, you don't need much matching on it. Uh, because it's all that the cells have been usually killed and uh, and removed, so there's not a huge amount of antigen, antigenic material. But then you, you still end up with a, a, a foreign body response or a, an immune response to that material uh, from from your own body that can uh, make the healing process slower. So it's got to be much better if we can manufacture the the scaffolding and have your own cells grow the part for you. Oh, absolutely, yes. And uh, everybody's trying to do that for a whole variety of different applications, not just for bone. But uh, I think bone is the easy one to start on. Uh, we, we also, as part of the research uh, into trying to find out how fast you can repair uh, yourself using tissue engineered materials, it's vital to know how fast the blood vessels will actually grow into the repaired area. Uh, it's the, really the major problem with all large volume tissue engineering uh, is that if you if you put in a scaffold and you put in a scaffold with the patient's cells or even if they were embryonic stem cells or whatever, those cells only have about a... You've got about a week, an absolute maximum, in order to get the blood supply to them, otherwise they die. Uh, and that means that you can't really put in things much more than about four or five millimetres thick at the moment because that's about how far the, uh, the, the new uh, vascular bed can grow into the... The material. Uh, so we wanted to try and look at ways of monitoring how fast that actually happens, how fast this this new blood supply grows into the tissue engineering materials that we've got. And that's very difficult because the new vessels are only about a micron, so it's a fiftieth of your of the thickness of a human hair, 
that sort of width. So it makes them very hard to find and very hard to monitor uh, on, a, on a regular basis how fast they're growing into. So now we're looking at using uh, contrast agents uh, based around nanoparticles. So this one is a gold nanoparticle because they do all sorts of interesting things with gold. And we're then trying to see if we can target those to the growing vasculature and use that then to monitor how fast we're moving, uh, we're growing our, our blood vessels into our tissue engineered materials. And how do you get images of the nanoparticles in the blood vessels? Okay, well, we're only at a very early stage at the moment, so we, we're actually not using the gold part at the moment, but we're uh, adding uh, targeting molecules and fluorescent molecules and then looking uh, in a particular assay which actually uses uh, chicken embryos, so eggs, basically, fertile eggs, because they actually have a make a very nice uh, system to actually monitor what's happening. Once we've got our technology right, then we will go and use uh, a device called uh, a nano CT scanner, uh, which there's one up at the road at the University of Sydney, um, and uh, a close friend and colleague of mine actually uh, runs that equipment, and we'll use that then to try and monitor these using the nano CT, and from that we'll then move on to trying to find a, uh, a ways of doing it sort of in vivo, uh, but at the moment it's a matter of getting. The, the initial technologies tested uh, and a sort of proof of principle and then we can try and uh, then move on to uh, how we might want to do this in more sort of direct animal models. And just for the listeners who don't know, CT is computer tomography. tomography. That's right. And so that's sort of... That's an X-ray based uh, imaging system. And X-rays uh, like uh, get absorbed more by metal particles than they do by the normal soft tissue. Uh, and also more by metal particles than they do by bone, and bone more than soft tissue. So in order to see the difference, uh, we need to provide something that will absorb the X-ray better than the the CT than the, than the, the soft tissue does in, in in computed tomography. Once they're able to grow blood vessels quickly enough, everything else becomes easier. It does indeed. Yes. That was Professor Bruce Millthorpe using coralline material and polymers to build spare parts for people with your own stem cells. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Subscribe now. Now, if you caught the June 20th edition of Diffusion, you might have heard an interview with Professor Jenny Graves on some findings from the Marsupial Genome Project. Amongst other things, you would have learnt that the human X chromosome has evolved to contain an unusual density of so-called brains and ball genes. One of her co-authors on the recently published book Marsupial Genetics and Genomics was Dr Janine Deacon, who has looked instead at the evolution of the immune system and using colourful techniques such as chromosome painting, she's been able to observe the way in which chunks of DNA have migrated around the genome over evolution and how Tasmanian devils are being plagued by a disease unlike any other. Mick Cavazzini spoke to Janine Deacon earlier this week. 
you focused your attention in particular on the MHC genes, and these code for receptors that present foreign antigens to the T cells of the immune system. And it turns out that marsupials contain almost as many of these genes as humans do. How much can we actually say from this about the function of their immune system? That's a very interesting question because the whole reason we started looking at the MHC genes was to look at their immune function because a lot of the old literature on marsupial immune system was that you know they were kind of inferior to placental mammals or eutherian mammals um, and we wanted to work out if that was really the case. But as far as function, it's really hard to say whether they really function at the same level or doing the same sort of functions. One of the big findings that you came across was that MHC genes are actually scattered across a number of chromosomes in marsupials, whereas in the human they're more compartmentalised on certain regions. Can you speculate as to what this more streamlined arrangement in humans and and other placental mammals might have on the function and regulation of the MHC genes? Well, it's always been thought that the MHC region has remained as a cluster in all different species because of some sort of functional significance, and that might be controlling how these genes are regulated, so they might be sharing regulation. But then they're finding more and more that, like we've found in in the wallaby, that these genes are moving to other parts of the genome. So it's also been found more recently in the zebrafinch, and that's just recently been sequenced, that these genes are moving away from that traditional cluster. And that might be something to do with the pathogens they've um, come across during evolution. There might be some advantage to moving those genes away from that control of regulation. And you've also found that marsupials are not just some evolutionary backmarker, but they've got a handful of completely novel genes associated with the immune system as well. Can you describe what these are exactly? So one of the genes we've found is a novel T-cell receptor. Um, We're unsure of the function at this stage, but it it was found because there'd been some sequencing done of um, the expressed genes um, in the genome, and it looked a little bit like one T-cell receptor that was already there, TCL gamma. But um, it wasn't until we started mapping these genes and we found that that particular sequence went to a completely different chromosome to any of the other T-cell receptors that have a copy in Ethereum mammals that we realised we were onto something unique. Then we thought that perhaps because marsupials give birth to very immature young, it might be involved in that protection of the young, but it turns out it's actually expressed much later in pouch life, so it's probably not involved in that So what it's actually doing, we don't know, but it's kind of exciting. And other groups have now found that it's in sharks and similar ones in sharks and frogs. So by looking at marsupials, we've been able to find genes in other species as well. So finally, I wanted to ask you about the poor Tassie devil. Many people will have seen the horrible pictures of a facial tumour that's spreading like wildfire through native populations. This seems to have arisen spontaneously as a skin cancer in some single individual, but beyond simply re- replicating and metastasizing within that animal, it's able to latch onto others as a parasite on their flesh. In this case, you've been working on chromosome mapping of the, the genome of this cancer itself. What have you come across so far, and what, what do you hope to find out in the future? Well, we've found that it's been the tumour is very rearranged in its genome, so there's been lots of chromosomes that are, are no longer intact. They're what we call marker chromosomes, so they're highly rearranged. There's bits of the genome missing. The interesting thing, I guess, is that we probably have narrowed it down to it originating a female because there are 
most of the X chromosome genes I've looked at are present in two copies and that would suggest that it's a female. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and I guess for the future what we're looking at is to try and really get a detailed map of the, of the cancer and, and also assign a sequence to that, that cancer so we can look at what genes might be of important to, to the development of that cancer or um, perhaps even be able to develop a vaccine to some sort of specific target. So in, in terms of a vaccine, that given that this tumour is foreign to all of the animals that it currently infects, is there hope of identifying some prominent antigen that the Tasmanian devils could be vaccinated against in the future? Yeah, that's one of the main things we're trying to do is work out if there's perhaps a fusion protein, so two genes that have come together in the cancer that might be specific to the cancer and not present in the individual that we could use to vaccinate the animals with. And that was Mick Cavazzini reporting from the Australian National University, where Dr Janine Deacon has been mapping the chromosomes of our native marsupials. This timely work reveals insights about the evolution of the immune system and the emergence of a bizarre infectious cancer that's ravaging the devils of Tasmania. It's the sound of science. Here's James Bourne with the latest news on mind-controlling parasites. Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite of the phylum Apicomplexa. The suicide rats and, you know, the mind control and sort of basically it's a bit like the X-Files, you know, that these things can live in your brain and dictate how you behave. That talk this morning, toxoplasmosis, did I say it right, Very good, very good. I had to practice that. So what are these little wrigglies? These are the Toxoplasma tachyzoites, which is the infective stage of the parasite. All kinds of grazing animals accidentally ingest the eggs of Toxoplasma. Like rats, the parasite lodges in the brain and muscle where it can be passed to any predator, including us. Its final host is the cat. Around a third of us are infected with a brain parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. Now, this single-celled creature spreads to humans from cats and has a tendency to change the behaviour of its host. Uh, a few weeks ago, a team of scientists led by Frederick Thomas and Kevin Lafferty found that in countries where people were infected with the parasite, um, there were higher rates of brain cancer proportionally to parasite infection. Now, this was spread across all the news media. Um, if you caught the train in any of the eastern states of Australia, you would have read all about it in the MX newspaper. But this is a little bit overblown. The fact of the matter is this does not mean that this Toxoplasma gondii parasite can actually cause brain cancer or that the two are linked. Um, now, I, I think as a starting point, we should actually explain what Toxoplasma gondii is. And essentially, um, humans can become infected by gondii through contact with soil contaminated with cat feces or through eating infected meat. Now, these infections are quite common and up to a third of the world may carry the parasite. In the first few weeks of the infection, the parasite can cause flu-like symptoms and afterwards creates cysts in blood cells and neurons, which can persist for an entire lifetime without any obvious effects. And it can have a subtler effect on hosts. So the parasite clearly changes the behaviour of mice, for example, who become fatally drawn to the scent of cats. Um, this increases the odds that the parasite will actually end up in the cat, um, which is the only animal in which the parasite can reproduce. 
There's also some evidence that it does similar mind tricks in humans. So some studies have actually shown that we have subtle personality changes, um, illnesses like schizophrenia, anxiety and bipolar um, can also apparently be caused by the parasite. And there's also been a study that has shown that um, if you have the infection, you are two and a half times as likely to be involved in an accident in your car. Now, back to the new study. What Thomas and Lafferty did was they compared figures from 37 countries showing a correlation between infection rates with Gondii and brain cancer. What their study showed was that brain cancer was 1.8 times more common in countries where Gondii was most common compared to those where it was virtually non-existent. So let's take two extremes. In South Korea, 4% are infected, 3.4 out of every 100,000 people develop brain cancer each year. And in Brazil, 67% of people have the brain parasite and 5.5 out of every 100,000 develop brain cancer. But what you also have to consider, of course, is that these countries differ in other important ways. So wealthier countries have more sophisticated technology that can detect brain cancer. Um, they also have more accurate cancer registries. And so, of course, Thomas and Lafferty adjusted their results for national wealth um, along with cell phone use. Um, but none of these adjustments change the link between Gondii infections and brain cancer rates. So the question is, what does this actually mean? Um, it's an ecological study, um, which is one of the weakest designs in the hierarchy of medical research. So if you're looking at the differences between entire countries, it doesn't actually take into consideration the risks faced by individuals in these countries that might have affected the study. And also, just because these results point to a correlation, it, it doesn't mean that the parasite can actually cause cancer. What it does say is that it can increase some of the hallmarks of cancer, including um, a mild degree of inflammation. It can also stop cells from killing themselves, which of course is, is cancerous. Um, so I guess what's next? Um, both of the scientists that were involved recognised the limitations of the study. And they basically said that it could provide a good entry point for some further study on the actual links between the two. The obvious challenge with putting a further study together, of course, is actually getting a large enough sample of people that have brain cancer to do any type of study. But both of these scientists just suggest that it hasn't been done because no one's thought to do it. So the parasite might not be causing brain cancer, but I think it's still fairly interesting and still a little bit scary that a little organism could potentially control one person or, as the French have found out, maybe an entire race. That was James Bourne in his own words. Or was it really? I think it was. It could have been the parasites. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website at www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, James Bourne and Mick Cavazzini. Diffusion has been produced by James Bourne in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.